Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, good morning. So in your bulletin, it probably says that today's sermon is going to be from 1 John, but that did not end up happening. <laughs> I thought two days might be enough to prepare, and it was not. And so Saturday morning, I made a course correction. So we're actually going to be looking at uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 4 today. So you can turn with me there. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. And what we're going to see is that Paul is, is making a plea to this Philippian church that they have a, a unity, that he, he's giving them the instruction that as a group, as a church, that they need to be unified. And he's been talking to them about the trials and persecution that they've been facing uh, and, and having to deal with suffering. And then he shifts from that idea of suffering into this that you need to be unified, you know, especially in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering in difficult times. So that's what we'll be looking at. So the Coast Guard has this unique ship. It's probably like the most unique ship in any military, probably anywhere in the world. It's 295 feet long, and uh, it has three sailing masts on it. And it's the only sailing ship within the U.S. military. It's called the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Eagle. And I mean, it looks like something like it rolled out of Pirates of the Caribbean or Mutiny on the Bounty. You know, and here's this huge three-masted square rig sailing ship. And they use it to train the cadets at the academy. And you would think, okay, what does sailing have to do with a modern navy? And even some of the cadets, you know, you'll read interviews with them, and even they don't understand it when they first get there. Why, why are we going on a sailing ship? This makes absolutely no sense. But after they've been there for a while, they start to understand. Because you see, on a regular ship, you know, if you want to move somewhere, one guy can grab the throttle, push it forward, and the ship starts to go. He wants to stop, he pulls back, turns back, he controls the wheel. A sailing ship doesn't work that way. A sailing ship, especially one that's almost 300 feet long with three huge masts, takes a lot of people, 175 people they can crew. And they don't have winches on the sails or anything like that. They actually literally climb up the masts, spread out on it, and by manpower, they pull the sails up and down. To do that, there's one guy, the bosun's mate, and he's yelling out commands and instructions, telling them what to do. And everybody has to be listening to what he's saying, following that instruction, and they have to be unified in doing that, or else that ship's going to go nowhere. And that's what the cadets end up learning is this idea of teamwork, this idea of unity, of following instructions, of receiving those commands, and how critical that is. And in a similar way, the church has been called to unity. And we have one person, one individual, likewise, that's calling out those instructions to us that we're unified around, that we're listening to, and that's Jesus Christ and the gospel that he brought. And when we stray from that, just like the eagle would have a problem if people didn't listen to the bosun's mate, the church can run astray and have issues. So what we're going to see is that Paul is going to, to give us really a cause for our unity. He's going to give us that foundation. Why can we as a diverse group of people have some sort of unity 
So what does that cause? And then he was going to give us the command, the instruction to be unified. And, and then we're going to see what's the course of action after that. What's the application? What does it mean? How does that unity work itself out in our day-to-day -day life? So let me read through, and then we'll work our way back through the passage. So Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So right away, Paul lays out this foundation in verse one of what is the cause of our unity? And the church is really a unique group. If you think about it, you know, especially like at Emmanuel, where, where I'm at, we have a lot of people, and you can look around, and there's people from all sorts of different cultures. We probably have people from every single state within the United States. We have people from multiple different countries. If you stick around for our third service, you're going to find a service of a, a whole group of people that don't even speak the same language as we do. How can this group of people be unified? Especially if you look in the world today, our world is fracturing. It's becoming so tribal. Everybody's separating into their own little tiny groups, uh, and you're not allowed to cross over the street and find any sort of unity with somebody from another group. But the church is called to be unified. So what is that foundation? How can we even be unified? Paul starts out, and he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. And remember, he's just been talking about suffering. And he's been talking about the idea that you know, you're going to face suffering. Suffering is inevitable as a human, right? This world, really nobody makes it through life, Christian or non-Christian, without some measure of suffering. But as a Christian, you're going to face an extra level of suffering because of your Christianity. Because you've chosen to align with Jesus, then the world is going to end up finding opposition with that. That the world is going to turn against you. And we're starting to see that more and often in our world today. So Paul says that you can find an encouragement even in your suffering. Even when you face that suffering, you can find encouragement. Because Philippians 1.29, he says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So when you face suffering for being a Christian, the encouragement is, I was told this was going to happen. You know, it, it's almost a confirmation of your Christianity. You, know, I, you can't live your life as a stealth Christian, right? I mean, it's not like you're in the Air Force trying to avoid ground-to-air missiles, and if you've made it through and nobody figured out you were a Christian, you've succeeded. You, know, you should be known as a Christian. People should understand, yeah, this guy is different. He's a Christian, and not just a nominal Christian, someone in name only, but yeah, his life really is different. So you can find encouragement when you face suffering because you were told it was going to happen, and you share in that suffering with Christ. Christ suffered, you suffered, but the good news is that that suffering that you might face today 
is not going to last. Uh, Matthew 5.10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when you're facing suffering in this world, it's like you're donating to your spiritual 401k program, you know? You're building up your reward, your inheritance in heaven. John 15, 18, Christ said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You know, you're not alone. Everything that you may experience, I've already experienced it myself. I've already gone through that type of suffering. So because we're facing that suffering, we can find an encouragement in Christ. So if you're finding that encouragement because of your salvation, even in the face of suffering, he says, he continues on, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any comfort from love, love kind of forms the ecosystem, if you could say, of Christianity. Not like in a Beatles song of all you need is love, but think of it this way. Why were you saved? What was it that caused your salvation? You were saved because God so loved the world and sent his son. His son came, died because he loved the father and was obedient. So you're saved because of love. When you're saved, you enter into the church, which is the bride of Christ, which he loves. Being a part of that church, you're supposed to love those within the church as your brother and sisters in Christ. And then you're also supposed to exhibit love to the world. How do you do that? By sharing the gospel with them. If they respond to the gospel, we're back to the beginning again. They're saved because of the love of the Father. And it's this complete circle that goes around because of love. So then when you don't exhibit love towards each other, when you're not exhibiting that love, you break that chain. You know, now suddenly you don't love those in the church how are you going to love those in the world? Why are they going to listen to you if you can't even get along with those that you proclaim to be aligned with? So if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, you know, Christ said that he was going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who was going to indwell believers. We think about the Old Testament saints you know, they were in all, in a sense, they were going into battle. They were going into the, the world sort of unarmed. You know, their temple resided in one specific place in the city of Jerusalem. It could be conquered. It was conquered. It was torn down. They didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, you know, so they didn't have that support and that help. As Christians, we no longer have to go to some physical temple. We no longer have to, to worry about, is there a building that might be removed? Or I have to take a month out of my, you know, my schedule to go make the trek to Jerusalem. You are the temple. You're carrying it around with you because the Holy Spirit is residing with you as a helper. So then when you're not unified, you grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, so part of that foundation of our unity is you've been indwelled with the Holy Spirit. He is influencing your actions, your thoughts. So you shouldn't have disunity with the other people that are carrying around the Holy Spirit too. I mean, is the Holy Spirit at war with itself? And then he closes with any affection and sympathy. Affection is talking about like the inward feelings that you have. And it's actually a word for like all your organs that are on the inside. And it's used as a metaphor. It's like when you tell your wife, I love you with all my heart. Your heart doesn't love your wife, but she understands what you mean. You're saying with everything that's inside of me, I I love you. And it's that idea here that do you have an affection? It's not just an outward, okay, God tells me that I have to be unified and I have to care for these people. So I'll do it even though I don't like them, you know, and and it's going against my very nature, but I'm going to do it. No. As a Christian, you should find some sort of affection for those that are your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And then it, it doesn't just stay internal. It's not just the, oh, yeah, I love this guy, and then you sit and watch him struggle and suffer. But then there's also, he says, affection and sympathy. And the idea here is not just that you're sympathetic, oh, I, I feel bad, I'm empathetic to your situation, let me know when it works out for you. But it's this outward display that is working itself out, helping that individual. And so we have this, this foundation of these things that your salvation has given you, that you, you shouldn't struggle through suffering, you should find an encouragement Uh, that we should be loving each other, that we should be supporting each other, that we should allow the Holy Spirit to be instructing and guiding us, and and that we should have an affection and sympathy for each other as fellow believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that forms that foundation for unity. And so Paul says, so then, if you have these things, if you've received the benefit of these things, Then here's my commandment to you. And in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So he gives us this command to be unified. And he says, be of the same mind. And the Philippian church had a problem. They had this faulty mindset that they weren't unified around the gospel. You know, they weren't of the same mind, of the same purpose. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Paul will go on and he'll say, have this mind among yourselves. So here's what it's going to look like. When he says you're of the same mind, this is the illustration that he uses. He says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So when he says be of the same mind, he doesn't just mean believe all of the same things. It's not just, hey, do your doctrinal statements all align? Does everything, you know, come across? If not, then you're okay to separate? No. It is that you are unified in what you're doing, that your your mind's have the same goal, that you're, you're there to worship God, you're there to spread the gospel. And so at that base issue, 
are you like-minded with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, recognizing that you may have certain theological differences, that you may not agree on the tax rate that we should have in our world, or you know, what state is the right state to live in, or any of the issues that we might face. Those things are all superficial. They're all third-tier, second-tier type issues. Are you unified? Do you have the same mind with each other? Then he says having the same love. You know, our love in the church is not based upon an earthly affection. I mean, honestly, not all of us in the church are easy to love. You know, I recognize that I'm not the most lovable person in the world, you know. At times, I can be somewhat prickly or I can be difficult and, you know, I'm not necessarily always the most approachable. When I look at other people, what is my love based on? It's not based upon, do I like this guy? Or, you know, or am I thinking, oh, I, I can't stand this guy. He can't keep a tune. You know, he believes the wrong thing. He likes horrible music. You know, I, I, can't, I can't stand this guy. I don't even like his voice. You know, his voice annoys me. So what? Why would that cause a disruption? Is, you know, my evaluation of this guy who is a fellow Christian so much more important than God's evaluation of him. Because God's evaluation was that he loved this individual enough to save him, to sacrifice his son for him, and to bring him into his church and adopt him into his family. Yet, I'm going to say, I understand, you know, God's standards, but mine are way higher than God's. I mean, really? Are our standards so much more than God's? Are, is what you believe so much more important than what God believes? You're saying God can accept him, but I can't accept him. But Paul says, no, you need to have the same love, have the same mind, have the same love. You think about Christ. How did he exhibit his love for his disciples? You know, at the end of his life, they're celebrating the Passover. Christ is just hours from being crucified and he's with the, his disciples and he shows this you know, exhibition of love to them by getting down and washing their feet. Did he do that because his disciples were so kind to him? Because it was just an outpouring of love for them because they were such wonderful men? No. Think about what they were doing when Christ did that. They were sitting around arguing and fighting with each other over who was the greatest. I mean, if I'm in that situation and I'm Christ, I'm thinking, man, the last three years are a complete bust. You know, you know what? I'm getting rid of this group. I'm going to go out. I'm going to find some farmers. We're going to try it different this time. We're going to be farmers of men rather than fishers because the fishers just did not work out. I, I mean... Three years, and they're sitting around arguing and fighting over who's greater than the other one. And what does Christ do? He shows them one of the greatest exhibits of love that he could possibly do, and he gets down and washes their feet for them. Not because they were lovable men, but despite their actions, despite their words, 
despite where they were at, Christ said, I'm going to love these men. That is the example that we have. Do we have that same kind of love? And then he says, being in full accord. You know, our unity within the church is based around a mutual goal of worshiping God, glorifying God, and a confession of Christ, a confession to each other of Christ, and a confession to the world of Christ. Paul, when he says full accord here, it's not even a real word. Paul liked to do this. He would make up words. He would take two words, take these two words, and he would just smash them together, and now we got a new word. And so here he took together and sold, like S-O-U-L, not S-O-L-D. So like your soul. So he takes together and soul, and he smashes them together and comes up with this new word that's not found in the Greek anywhere else, that's together sold, that you are, your soul is united and, and together. And we have examples of that. You know, this is not a foreign concept. Think about marriage. You know, marriage is one plus one equals one, right? That you and your, your wife or your husband, you join together, and now you have this common purpose. You're together sold, that you are working together as a unit for a common goal. The Trinity is our ultimate example of that. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Are they separate? Are they off doing their own thing? Are their agendas different? No, they're together. They're united in their goals and what they're trying to do. Likewise, the church is supposed to function that way too. And then he says, again, end of one mind. You see, he started out, he said same mind. Now he's got one mind. But here again, it's this idea of that you're one body, that in a marriage, you have two people that are one body, that you have uh, a bunch of people that make up an army. You, you don't call each individual in there an army. Together, they make one army. You have a bunch of men that come together to make a football team. They're one team. Yeah. It, it, the one illustration of this is if you think of an ant colony. There are some scientists that when they view an ant colony, they don't view it as a bunch of organisms kind of functioning. They view it as what they call a super organism, that it's, you have to view it holistically and that it, this ant colony itself is almost like its own organism. Because if you take the individual ant and you throw it off by itself, it's going to die. It's not going to live past a week or so and it's going to be done. But that ant colony, when you have all these different parts and pieces that come together and they're unified and they all have one mind, the support of that colony, then it survives. And the church is very similar to that. You know, you can't go off as an individual Christian and survive on your own. Just as an ant can't go off on its own, you're going to die. Spiritually, you're going to die. You have to be a part of this super organism that's called the church where we come together as all these different cultures and ethnicities and people with different backgrounds, and we all come together with different skills and abilities and maturity, and we form this group called the church that really should not exist. So our unity is not just, you know, a practical matter of function, but our unity brings honor to Christ. It confesses to the world what Christ has done with us. It brings glory to God. 
It's not an optional part of our Christianity. It's a command to be unified, to be joined together. If you think about something like the spiritual gift of tongues. So the spiritual gift of tongues was given as a sign to the, the unbelieving Jews that, hey, you know, you guys have rejected the king, but also it was this sign of unity within the church that back at the Tower of Babel, the, the people of the world were spread across the world. They were separated and sent apart with different languages. And now here is the church, and despite different languages, they're brought back together again. They're unified together through the work of Christ. You know, it's a supernatural uh, event, and it's a supernatural outworking. So how do we apply this then? What does this look like in our day-to-day lives? What is our course for unity? So verses three and four give us kind of four application points. And what Paul will do is he's going to say, look, don't do this, but instead do this. So he's going to give a do not do, and then here's what I want you to do. And he's going to do this twice, this same pattern. So the first one, he says, verse three, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Are you self-seeking? Do you have this selfish ambition? Why are you involved in ministry? Why are you caring for other people? What is driving you in your life? The Philippian church had this problem that the people were looking out for themselves and, uh, you know, they had this desire to, to further their positions. So you have this self-seeking ambition. And sometimes, you know, this can almost seem spiritual. It works itself out in a way that initially might seem spiritual. Think about the Corinthian church. So in the Corinthian church, they had a problem with disunity. And everybody separated into their own camps. And uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 12, it says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And you can imagine these groups. You know, here's uh, the first group, and they say, hey, I, I, we're with Paul. You know, we're with Paul on this. Uh, you know, Paul's the one that wrote to us, you know. And, and then the next group is like, yeah, well, we're, we're with Apollos. You know, Apollos is the one that's kept this church going. Paul came in, but he left. He's not even here. Apollos has been here. So, you know, we're a little bit more spiritual than you. Then the next group's like, well, we follow Cephas, who's Peter. You know, he was one of the original 12. You know, not like your pseudo-apostle Paul there, or Apollos, who's, he's not even an apostle, you know. We're following the original, you know, apostle Peter. And then there's the fourth group, well, I follow Christ. And initially, that seems like a good thing, right? You follow Christ. You're supposed to be following Christ. They're not saying it because they're doing it right. They're just, it's this one-upsman game. We're following Christ. You want to try and top Christ? What do you got? You have Peter. You can have Paul. You can have Paulus. We got Christ. Top that. Yeah. And so it seems spiritual, but it's not. It's this self-serving ambition. And then he says conceit. And this conceit, understand that it's this, 
empty glory or this vain glory. So I grew up in Los Angeles, and we kind of lived on the very outskirts of L.A. So, you know, L.A. just kind of building out. It was like, a, you know, a blob that just kind of kept spreading. And, and where we lived at was right on the outskirts. So, you know, you went south, and you went, you know, towards Hollywood and all of that. North of us was just like mountains and desert. There was nothing there. And so as a kid during the, the summer, you know, I would just wander around these hills and, and just explore. And one day, I come over this hill, and in this, like, valley is this town, like, in the middle of nowhere. There's this whole little, best way I can explain it is, a little Mexican town. And so I go down there, and there's no people there. Everything is, is empty. And I start walking around. They've got all these buildings. They've got, like, a little bar. They've even got a church with a bell tower. And then I see over on this one hill is this huge, gigantic mansion kind of overlooking this, this little Mexican town. And I'm like, well, I got to go up there and see the, the mansion. You know, so I go up there, and there's a fountain in front of it. And go up, and the, the doors are all, like, locked and shut. And I'm like, well, let me walk around the side and see. I go around the side, and there's nothing there. All it is is a wall that looks like a mansion, and behind it, there's nothing. It's just open, and there's you know, two by fours holding the face of this thing up. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm probably at a movie set, you know? Um, and that's what it was. It was this movie ranch in the middle of the mountains. And, you know, but that's the idea, is, you know, this vainglory or this conceit is, have you put up a facade, you know, hey, look, I'm this huge mansion, this big, beautiful mansion, and there's absolutely nothing inside. You know, do you have this empty glory this really, this facade of self-righteousness. In Philippians 2, 7 through 11, Paul will say this. But Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See Jesus is elevated and given glory and it's not an empty glory. It's not a facade. There was substance behind it because he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of dying on a cross. So then, what kind of glory are you chasing? Are you chasing the easy glory, the self-serving, self-ambitious glory? Or are you worried about, how am I going to serve people? How am I going to love people? How am I going to foster unity within the church? So don't have that mindset. Instead, he says, value others as more significant than yourself. You know, you, you'll hear, you know, a lot of modern psychology says, you need to learn to love yourself first before you can love other people. You know, part of the problem is we already love ourselves so much, right? I, I mean, really, is that really the problem that we, we don't love ourselves enough? Yeah, really, if you chase that thread on the, yeah, you start pulling at that, 
you find out no, most of the time it's that you love yourself entirely too much and you don't love anybody else. All you're looking at is how can these people serve me? How can they feed me? What do they bring to me? As a Christian, your attitude is different. Proverbs 15, says, the fear of Yahweh is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. You, know, you want to find honor? You want to be honored by God? You want to be honored by people? Find humility first. Isaiah 2, 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. So do you count others as more significant than yourself? Then he says, in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So don't just look to your own interest. And notice Paul says, don't look at your interest at all. He says, don't look only at. You know, you are instructed to have interest, right? You are instructed to have ministries that you're a part of, that you're interested in doing, that you want to be a part of the music or the, uh, the nursery or, or things like that. You should have those interests and you should pursue them, but that should not be the only thing driving you. You need to be involved in ministry. You need to be serving. You need to be pursuing your own interest, but also at the same time, you need to be looking out to the interest of others in the church. Consider how they're serving. I mean, it's fantastic that you guys do share with each other. Here are the people that are ministering in the church. Here is what they're doing so that you know, that you know, here are the other people that are serving. Here is how they've ministered. How can I come alongside them and help them in what they're doing? Be present with them. You know, find time. How can I help you? What can I do for you? You know, like here, Jeff calls up, says, uh, you know, I need help. You know, can you, can you preach? Yeah, whatever I can do to help serve you guys as a church, I'm grateful to do it. I'm grateful to be a part of that, looking out for the interests of others. So we've been given a foundation for our unity, your salvation, and all of the benefits that you've received. And a command, it's not optional. This is not you can take it or leave it. This is not a, a third-tier doctrine of, you know, how long is, you know, the millennium and, you know, when's the rapture happen? And those are third-tier issues, right, that we can agree to ultimately disagree on. This is a first-tier thing, that if you're going to have disunity you can't say that you have the foundation of salvation then. If you're like, I, I can't have anything to do with the church, can't stand organized religion, you know, like Jesus, don't like anybody that's with him, you have to ask yourself, are you really a Christian? Or might you be someone that's in love with the world and that's why you don't love the bride of Christ? Because if you're part of the bride of Christ, how do you look at the rest of your body and dislike it. I mean, your thumbs don't hate each other, right? They work together. They're part of the same team. Likewise, you're part of that body of Christ. So we've been given the command to have unity. It's not optional. It's not something that you can choose to neglect. 
And then we've been given the instructions of how to do it, that you're not supposed to be doing it from you know, a conceited place of seeking glory or self-ambition, but you should be looking to lift other people up. And you should view other people as more significant than yourselves. What can I do to serve them? How can I care for them? If God loved them, obviously there's a huge, immense value to them. So what can I do to then lift them up? And then don't look only to your own interests. Don't be so self-absorbed that you miss how you can serve those around you. You think back again to Christ and that example of humility where he kneels down and he starts washing their feet. And you say, man, look at that you know, exhibition of love towards these people that rejected him. But it goes on and he goes to die on a cross. And, and he dies on a cross to save a thief that's hanging on a cross next to him, to save his 11 disciples, which one of them denies him before this. These are the people that he's saving. You know, God doesn't save good people, right? Christ didn't die on the cross for good people. Good people don't need Christ. And they do, they just don't realize it, right? Don't realize that they're sick. So we all recognize that we're coming from a position of being unlovable. I mean, there's no reason that God should love us, and yet he does. And he had that sacrifice for us. So then we look around at those within the church, and we recognize that these are the people that Christ died for. These are the people that he joined together with me that I need to find unity with. So I ask you this week, what can you do in your life to help foster unity within Cascades Bible Church, to bring this group together to be unified to further the goal of worshiping God and spreading his gospel. We close this in prayer. Dear Lord, we are so very grateful for sending your son, knowing uh, our position that we come as undeserving as those that were in opposition to you and that you were willing to love us and bring yourself down to us. And we thank you for that salvation and for all the benefits that come with it. We thank you for allowing us to, to be able to love those that are so different than us, that have different motivations and different backgrounds and different lives and that all of that matters for nothing, that we're unified behind you, behind the salvation that you've provided and before our common goal of bringing you worship, of bringing you glory and of sharing your gospel. And I pray that you would encourage us and that you would give us opportunities to share that gospel and to build that gospel up within the local church that you've placed us in. I ask that you would help to support Cascades, that you would help them to, to grow in unity, to grow in understanding, to grow in their love for each other and their love for the world around them. And in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.